Good morning, everyone. How are you all doing? Good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, covered by his blood, and we want to intercede from, for some of our brothers and sisters who are sick right now and ask for your healing upon them, ask for your mercy upon them. Some of them have had to go to urgent care. Some of them have been in the hospital this past week. Uh, we thank you for healing those so far and ask that you would do the rest, God. We continue to ask that you would have your hand of protection upon this church in regard to various illnesses. Um, let us, God, be reminded that uh, our life uh, is always in your hand and that our breath every day comes from you, Lord, and you decide when it starts, you decide when it stops. So we ask, God, that you would um, be gracious uh, to those that are uh, suffering and um, touch them, use this in their lives, God, uh, to strengthen their faith in you. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, that it is pure, true, righteous, holy, uh, because you are true, righteous, holy, and amazing. So thank you for being our God. Thank you for being the one that uh, reveals yourself to us and calls us to be yours. Lord, we ask that you would um, bless the rest of our service as you have so far. Continue to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to wrap up chapter 1 today. Starting in verse 11, we're going to look at these last two verses. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to kind of have an intro to my intro, and, and that is this. I think that what God is wanting to impress upon the church in regards to COVID is the foolishness of man. And I think man has said we've, we've figured out this virus, and we figured out how to stop it, and we figured out how to put an end to it, and God has said, no, you didn't. And he is showing us that what we think we have control of we don't have control of. And guess when this virus is going to finally come to an end? When God decides. We can do everything we want in our power, but the greatest of greatest of greatest of scientists have yet to give us a vaccine that is fully 100% effective. That's just the truth. Now, this isn't pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. What it is is pro-God's wisdom and anti man's wisdom, because if we rely on the wisdom of men, we will always be disappointed every single time. And so we need to be careful that we don't rely on the wisdom of men and push aside the wisdom of God. And part of what God's wanting us to do is to realize, just like James says, our life is like a vapor. And God's wanting to drive that point home to each and every one of us that our life is like a vapor. We're here today, we are gone tomorrow. And the question every one of us should have asked, and if you haven't, you need to, over this past year, over your life, really, is like, are you ready to meet God? 
Are you ready to meet your maker? And as a pastor, I've been in different situations where people's life is coming to an end. It is clear the Lord is getting ready to call them home for different reasons, for, fa- for health, usually failing health. And having those, those last conversations with people can be quite sobering for them and even for myself. But it is good for us to realize that, friends, ultimately we have to trust God regardless of where we're at in our life. We have to put our trust in him for our lives. And guess what I think is even harder is for our kid's life and our spouse's life. And that's hard to do. It is hard to trust him with things that we care about, things that matter to us, things that are way at the top of our priority list. I think most of us could be okay, hopefully, with our possessions being taken away and different things happening, but like the thought of us losing um, a spouse or a child, we know that would be devastating, as it should be. And that's where God's like, do you trust me? Like the song that we, we, we sang, It Is Well, Mike's right. Um, I, I believe the gentleman uh, lost his, wife, uh, his two daughters and maybe his wife, I'm not sure. Lost them, they, they were lost at sea. And he gets, he gets the notice of that, and then he is sailing back, and the captain of the ship says, we think this is where, where your, your uh, daughters and, and wife lost their life, and that's where he writes the hymn that we just sang. It is well with my soul. Think about the faith that it would take after going through something like that to be able to put pen to paper and write a song like that. It is well with my soul. That doesn't mean he was rejoicing and, and thought everything was great. That is, his kids had died and his wife had died. But it is well knowing that God would take him through whatever he needed to go through. That he could trust God every single step of the way. And you know, it's interesting where the church is at in America. Uh, last year, uh, the Gallup, which does all sorts of different surveys, reported that for the first time in over eight decades, church membership had dropped below 50%. 50%. So people are leaving church left and right. The church is becoming, in part of its own doing, more and more irrelevant. Last year with COVID didn't help. And, and we talked a little bit about this at the, at the members meeting, but um, one gentleman, Tom Rayner, who works with a whole lot of churches, uh, Baptist churches and non-denominational churches, but also has a whole spread of churches in his network. And he kind of was polling different pastors to kind of find out, hey, where, where are your members at? Where are your, where's your church at? How are they doing? And basically what he saw was this, uh, what he called the 30-40-30 concept. So basically 30%, the pastors were saying 30% of their members were gone and they hadn't seen them. And the conclusion was they weren't coming back. So since basically the, you know, whatever, March of 2020, year and a half roughly, 30% are gone and are not coming back. 40%, that's the 30 part, 30-40-30. The 40 part is 40% are kind of on the fringe still. They might come once a month, once every six weeks. They're really not involved. They're not doing much. And then that last 30 of the 30-40-30 is 30%. So one-third, essentially, one-third from where churches were at a year ago, one-third are still there, plugged in, and serving. Now, I meet with a a group of pastors uh, about once a month or so, and so I kind of bounced this 30-40-30 idea off them because I was just curious what they thought about it, and and they actually agreed almost every single one, actually, I think every single one of them agreed that that number or numbers uh, reflected their church, 30-40-30. 
So then when I look at where, like, what God's been doing in our church for the past year, um, I, I, I don't know if I'd put percentages on things, but by and far, um, people are engaged, people are um, growing, people are serving, people are ministering, people are fellowshipping, and um, those numbers don't reflect our church at all. And I thank the Lord for that. Like, God's been doing some amazing stuff. Most of these churches had seen a decline, and we've been blessed by God's grace. We've seen an increase. So um, I just want to, one, encourage us, but also realize, like, here's the thing. If, if the church in America is, is, is becoming irrelevant, in part, like I said, because of its own doing, um, where does that leave people? Where does that leave believers? Where does that leave unbelievers? I mean, people aren't hearing the truth. They're not hearing the truth. Where does that leave unbelievers? I mean, it leaves them where, where they're always at. That leaves them in darkness. But think about this for a minute. When the darkness is so dark, the light is clearly seen from within the darkness. Like, when it's really dark, when you're in a really dark place and, and you see a light... I mean, it's pretty clear what that is. I remember years ago I was discipling uh, a young man, and, um, and so we were driving around, and I was trying to emphasize something to him, and we drove, like, to literally the middle of nowhere out in these cornfields. I mean, and it was, like, one of those, like, super dark black nights. The moon wasn't out. And so we got, we pulled over in the middle of nowhere. You, you couldn't even see anything. Um... I, you know, I told, I was like, I turned to him, and I was like, do you trust me? <laughs> like, do you, I'm like, he's like, yes. I'm like, okay, get out of the car. <laughs> so he gets out of the car, really, I just had to pull up a little bit so I could park. There wasn't much room. So he gets out, I get out, and we're sitting, uh, we're standing in the middle of this cornfield, and we can hardly see our hand in front of our face. I mean, it is, it is dark, dark, but like, and there's nothing for what appears to be miles. But way, 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 way off in the distance, way off in the distance, we can see this tiny little light coming from this farmhouse. So, completely surrounded by darkness, yet we can see that light. And guess what? If I was lost, guess what I would do when I saw that light? I'd walk towards that. Right? If I'm lost, I'm going to the light because that gives me a point of reference. I know what that light represents. Jesus tells us what? We are the light of the world. And hopefully people are seeing us within the darkness that they have and they're being drawn to us. I mean, Corinthians says we have an aroma, right? The gospel has an aroma and if we've got the gospel, we have an aroma and, and some it's, it's a horrible smell, but some it's very appealing. People are drawn to Christianity because of the appeal that it has. Because they see, they don't really see you. They see Christ in you. And that's what they're drawn to. So, I mean, for us, the question is, is, is the church in America, is it going to capitulate? So far, in many aspects, segments of the church have capitulated, and they've given in. They're teaching critical race theory. They're teaching abortion is acceptable. They're teaching their sheep to roll over and play dead, and maybe the civil government will leave them alone. There's a, there's a mega church in Atlanta uh, that just started requiring COVID vaccination cards to attend. 
I mean, you got to show your little COVID vaccination card. That, that means kids under 11 can't go to church there. So we've rendered to Caesars what is Caesars, like Jesus tells us to, but what have we done? We keep rendering to Caesar even more. And we give Caesar everything else he's asked for. And if Caesar asks, we'll just give it up without even asking the question, does he have the right to ask that of us? If Caesar asks, guess what? We're not required to give it every time. We're not required to give it every time. Caesar has his own sphere from which he operates. Guess where that sphere is? In the sphere of God's sovereignty. And within that sphere, he has rules and limitations. He is not the sovereign. Not the sovereign sovereign. So his sphere, guess what? It's limited. His power is limited. His jurisdiction is limited. And for the past year, we've, we've seen large overreaches. That's the bottom line. Uh, there's a church in Kansas City. I think um, one of our former members actually uh, goes there. Uh, there's a church in Kansas City. I mean, Kansas City and, and St. Louis, I mean, they've been, uh, it's, it's tyranny. It's been tyranny. Uh, but, but they stood up to the tyranny in Kansas City. And, and when the churches were singled out, they said, fine, we'll, we'll take you to court and we'll fight. And guess what? That court case went through and they won and the city just recently had to write them a check just like John MacArthur got his check. Recently, that city got written a check for like $200,000. Okay? And here's why that's important. You want to know why that's important? Because that church stood up and they had the financial ability to do that. But guess what? The next time the government is thinking about putting a little pressure on churches, they're going to remember that, that church in Kansas City that stood up, that pushed back. And guess what? Courts have decided now in favor of that church, so there's precedence that's been set. And if you wait to resist until the very last point, you're probably going to fall because you're not going to have a leg to stand on. So at, point, at, at some point, our evangelical leaders, I'm just going to tell you, some of them have failed us by telling us to capitulate and capitulate and capitulate and give in and give in and give in. And guess what? If you don't stand at some point, you just won't ever stand because you'll just start falsely quoting verses about rendering to Caesar what Caesar's. He has a limited sphere. We have to understand it. He can't require us to do anything and everything he wants. Study your Bibles to see where his jurisdiction ends. It does end. God's jurisdiction, guess what? It doesn't end. What Caesar's does. Guess what? The family's jurisdiction, it ends. Okay? It has limits and bounds on it. So does the church's. God's, it doesn't. So the church has certain things it can ask you to do and to even tell you to do. And it has certain things it, it can't ask you to do and tell you to do. Same with the family, but also the same with the civil government, what we're calling Caesar here. Friends, just to make sure we're clear, only one being has unlimited rule, and that is God himself. People reject that truth. What does Romans 1 tell us? They change the truth of God for what? For a lie, right? They change the truth of God for a lie. They want to believe that lie. Friends, let's just be honest. Some of us were there at one point believing that lie. We wanted to believe that lie. And what does God then do? What well, we find out in Romans 1, he lets them have what they want. Fine, you want that? Is that what you want? I mean, you can have it. But you know what else? When we keep reading Romans, we find out? 
He lets, he lets us have what we want, but then what does he do? He redeems some of us from that darkness. He redeems some of us and opens our eyes to that lie so we see it for what it is. He grabs us from the pit and pulls us up out of the muck and mire, cleanses us with the blood of Jesus, and calls us his own children. Yet people reject that. And here, in these two verses, here we're back to Paul living a prayer-filled life. I mean, always praying. Always praying, always praying. I've been, I've been encouraged that people in the past couple of weeks with the different things they've been dealing with, you probably had feeling like your inbox is a little bit more flooded than normal from Liberty because different people have prayer requests. I hope you're pausing at least right then to offer up a prayer for that person asking for prayer requests because really when a prayer request goes out, that means every member who's getting that, that person should have been prayed for whatever, however many times. I don't know how many people we got, you know, 75, 80, 100, something like that. Uh, those people should have been prayed for at least once by each one of us that gets that email. Man, I'd be encouraged to know that. Wouldn't you be encouraged? You send out an email and you know you got 85 people that they're going to get that and they're going to throw they're going to they're going to offer to the Lord even if it's just like a 10 or 15 second prayer, they're going to offer that to the Lord. I'd be encouraged by that knowing 85 people are praying for me. Would you guys be encouraged by that? So, I mean, I've been encouraged that our body is is reaching out for a prayer. We need to make sure we do that. It's just following in, in what Paul's doing right here. To this end, verse 11, we always pray for you. Okay, so, I mean, I don't know how you keep track of your emails or how you deal with them or what you do with your prayer list, but every time one of those comes through, you, you can, you know, flag that email so it stays in your inbox and you see it the next time you check your email and offer up another prayer for them. Or write that in your prayer list. Have your, your little prayer notebook right there, however you do it. Pray for those people, all right? Yeah, it's sure, it's, 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 oh, it's Mike and Justice's job, and they're the pastors, and they're the shepherds. Well, sure, absolutely. But we've covenanted together, haven't we? Right? We're fellowshipping together. We're doing life together. So that means when, when one part of the body is hurting, when the, when the arm is broken, we're helping out the arm. We're lifting up the arm. We're helping fix the arm. We're taking food to the arm. We're making sure it's fed and nourished, Right? So that's what we want to do. So here's Paul. He's praying. These prayers serve as exhortations. So he's always praying, but he's also always encouraging and always exhorting. So he's letting us know, hey, this is what we're praying for you. But But when we read it, we also see it as an exhortation. He's praying this, but he's also encouraging this. And what is he doing? He wants to make a couple things clear to us. First, he tells us, to live in a manner worthy of God. Look what he says towards the middle of verse 11. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. Notice, though, what's going on here. It's God working. See, the mistake we make is we make our worth before God conditional on our actions. And as a believer, we shouldn't do that. Okay, If you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, then guess what your domain is? Light. We're in the domain of light. So that's, that's where we're acting in, in that domain. Now, we might act what appears to be contrary to the light of time. We might do things that, man, it doesn't look like he's living in the light much, but that's the domain that God's put us in. And sometimes what happens is, is we make our worth before God 
conditional on our actions. Look, our worth doesn't come from what we do. It comes from what Jesus already did. So that's why it's really important here when he says God may make you worthy. Uh, Some versions say God may count you worthy. Again, notice what it says. God makes us worthy. It's not up to us. This is that idea that we talked about last week of justification. God making us righteous in his sight. He declares it. And what God declares, guess what? It's true. So we don't make ourselves worthy. It's up to God. And guess what, friends? Like, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. It's not up to you and you and you and you and me. Because then we'd be hopeless and we'd be hurting. And every day we'd wake up and we're like, oh, I don't know where I'm at with the Lord. No, he's declared it. He has made us worthy in his sight. So I'm glad it's not up to us. Else we'd be in a world of hurt. And so that means a few things, like our status comes from God. Our identity comes from God. And our worth, it comes from God. Think about it like this. The maker defines his creation. He gives it the meaning he wants. And even more important, God, as the maker, defines his children and lets them know what he thinks about them. And over and over in Scripture, we see what God thinks of his children. He loves, he cares, he nourishes, he adores. That's what he does. So what's his point here? Like, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're anticipating his return. That's, that's the whole passage, of, starting with really verse 4 and 5, following on is we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're anticipating his return. Now, I asked myself, I didn't ask myself this when I first got saved. I was probably just too immature. But I asked myself sometimes, I, mean, I asked myself, like, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus came back today? Like, I think it would be cool. I mean, I'm ready for him to come back. When I was first saved as an immature believer, I heard older, mature believers talking about, like, they're ready for Jesus to come back. And, like, I didn't totally get that all the way. I'm like, no, no, I got some things I need to do first, okay? <laughs> but, like, I'm, I'm ready for him to come back. I'm ready for him because I want to see the fulfillment of this, friends. This is like eschatological glory we're talking about. Just jump back to verse 10 for a second. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Man, I can't wait to see that. That's going to be pure, righteous, holy, and amazing. We're going to be marveling. He's going to be glorified in our midst. We will see him for who he really is. Which kind of gets back to, like, us, us in comparison to God. Like, how do we come before him when we're talking about, like, our, our worth? He's made us worthy. That means if it's all about what he's doing, guess how we approach him? With humility. It's interesting because we get, uh, uh, it's in Proverbs, but then James quotes it. God opposes who? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That means if we're walking around in pride, guess what? God's opposing us. That's, I mean, that's a pretty easy, nice little application, right? If it says God opposes the proud and we're prideful, then God opposes us. All right, little syllogism there. God, we don't want to be in a position where God opposes us. We want to make sure we are doing what that second part of the verse says. God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Pride keeps a lot of people from coming to Jesus. 
Many other things do too. There's sin, of course. Man, you have to humble yourself to come before the Lord. You have to humble yourself to stay before the Lord in His presence. So he's talking about this eschatological glory here, and he's talking about making us worthy of his calling. And then he goes on, and, and he says, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. What's he talking about? He's talking about living up to the standard. Like God has a standard, and he wants us to live up to that standard. We know what it is. We don't have to guess what it is. I mean, we have truth. We have it. Right here. Amen? Amen? So we have his truth, and it's God's truth. I remember when I was uh, down at Mizzou, I, you know, I got my degree in religious studies, and the head of the department uh, taught a few classes there, obviously. Um, and one of the stories that he'd tell all his uh, kind of intro freshman class, he'd give this illustration. It's a well-known illustration about um, six blind men um, coming up upon an elephant in the outer courts of, of the king. And the king is up on his balcony, and he sees this six blind men come across this elephant. And they're touching different parts of the elephant, trying to figure out, hey, what is this thing, right? Because they're blind. They don't know. So the first one touches the side of the elephant. And he's like, oh, that's you know, how smooth an elephant is like, is like a wall. The second blind man puts out his hand and, and touches the trunk. And he's like, oh, how round. An elephant is like a snake. The third blind man puts out his hand and touches the tusk of the elephant. How sharp. An elephant is like a, a spear. And then the fourth blind man puts out his hand and, and he touches the leg of the elephant. He's like, man, how tall. An elephant is like a tree. Then the fifth blind man reaches out his hand and, and touches the ear of the elephant. He's like, how wide. An elephant is like a fan. And then the sixth blind man puts out his hand and touches the tail of the elephant. And he's like, how thin? An elephant is like a rope. And, and so oftentimes this story is told, and, and, and the application is like, well, that's how all the world religions are. They just got a little piece of the truth. You know, we got Christianity over here describing it like this, and, and Buddhism over here describing it like this. So it's kind of might feel like, oh, we're, we're all kind of blindly reaching, trying to figure out what's going on with religion. But a couple different, it's interesting because this is, it, it's a really well-known story, but a couple theologians have, have poked some serious holes in it. And I'm just going to quote from some of them. Listen to this. The story is told from the point of view of the king and his courtiers, who are not blind, but can see that the blind men are unable to grasp the full reality of the elephant and are only able to get hold of part of the truth. And he says the, the story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of the great religions to suggest they learn humility and recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. <clears throat> but here's what he says. The real point of the story is exactly the opposite. If the king were also blind, there'd be no story. The story is told by the king, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the world religions are only groping after. It embodies the claim to know the full reality, which relativizes relativizes all the claims of the religions and philosophies. Here's how another theologian summed it up. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim he'd be able to see the whole elephant? 
How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claimed that none other religions have? Right? Far from being satisfied with their idiosyncratic, partial, perspective-driven, limited understanding, the blind men would have wished for the light by which they could see the whole, the true, the real, that upon which they could all agree, the final reality that would account for each of their perceptions. And here's what uh, Greg Kokel, uh, Standard Reason president, we're going to his reality conference in a few weeks, he says this, and this is even more insightful, I think, even though the men are blind, the elephant isn't necessarily mute. This is a factor the illustration doesn't allow for. What if the elephant speaks? The claim of Christianity is that man doesn't learn about God by groping. Instead, discovery is through God's own self-disclosure. He is not passive and silent, leaving us to guess about his nature. God tells us what he is like and what he wants. If God speaks, this changes everything. Right? If he speaks, if the elephant speaks, it changes everything. All contrary opinions are silenced. All conjectures are put to rest. God has made himself known, giving us a standard by which to measure all other religious claims. The parable of the blind men does not take this possibility into account. Yet three of the world's great religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, make this claim. So we have the truth. We have the truth. And truth, it's a capital T. Jesus is the truth. That's what he tells us. John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I remember being in, a, in a, uh, one of my upper class classes at uh, Mizzou, and they brought in this professor from the U- University of Missouri, or excuse me, from the University of Chicago. It's like this very prestigious religious studies school, be one of the top in the nation. And, and she's going on and on. And this is just when I was taking like Greek 1 or Greek 2 down at Mizzou. <clears throat> and she makes some comment, like, about the Greek text. And I was like, oh, oh, no, you don't. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm like, I'm just going to let it go and not totally call her out in front of everyone, but I am going to take the opportunity afterwards to talk to her. So it ends, and I go up to her, and, and, and my professor's there standing next to her, next to this pretty well-renowned um, professor. And so... But she had made some, some comment about Jesus and what he had claimed. And, and so I was just like, hey, you know, John 14, you kind of talked about the Greek. And John 14, um, in verse 6, says, Jesus says in English, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I've taken a semester of Greek. I'm in my second semester. And, and I've looked at that in the Greek. And guess what it says in the Greek? It says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. <laughs> like, it's no different. I'm like, so how do you account for that? Like, Jesus made a very... Uh, straightforward religious claim that puts him into a category that other religious figures, uh, world religious figures, didn't make. I mean, and she stood there kind of fumbling over her words. Uh, my, my professor, I could tell, was unhappy with me questioning uh, this professor. But, <clears throat> you know, I learned something that day. I actually, I learned a few things that day. I learned my grade was going down. <laughs> uh, true, fa- true, true story, by the way. But, um, what I learned was that sometimes it's back to the man's wisdom. This, this professor is spouting all sorts of stuff, and yet 
this undergraduate with just a little bit of Greek knowledge could cause her to fumble over her words and not know how to answer. That, that's the wisdom of man versus God's truth right here in his word. And so, you know, was I able to kind of go toe-to-toe with this lady, not in terms of uh, credentials or academics or even really knowledge in one sense, but what I knew was Christ crucified. That's kind of what Paul holds on to, right? He's like, you all know all this different knowledge and wisdom, but I'm going to hold on to this, and it's Christ crucified. He's, I mean, <clears throat> Paul was pretty well versed, you all realize. He was not some slouch. He was not some, like, couch potato that just ate potato chips all the time and, and read his Bible occasionally. He was very educated. Very, very educated man. Yet, what does he hold on to? What is true that he knows? This is like the primary thing for me, Christ crucified. So when you read his letters, like if he wants to, he can get all eloquent, but he rarely does. Why? Because he wants the truth to be plainly stated and the words to speak for themselves. Back then, like if you read Corinthians, one of his points in the first couple chapters, it's kind of like lawyers today, the rhetoricians back then or the attorneys back then would pride themselves that they could like basically make you know, essentially any defendant, they could prove them innocent by twisting the words and the evidence and different things like that. And that's why Paul's like, look, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquent words. I could have come to you with eloquent words. I could have done all sorts of things, could have tried to use manipulation, but that's not me, and that's not the gospel. So what did I come to you with? A proclamation of the truth in its fullest and simplest form. I mean, isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That, like, a two- or a three-year-old can respond in faith to the gospel. I've talked to people who are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that that they made a decision sitting in a church at the age of two to trust in Jesus. Why? Because that is the simplicity of the gospel. Trust in the, the, the basics of the basics, the message, trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. And they did that. Yet we have people with all sorts of initials behind their name, all sorts of degrees. And that simple truth eludes them. Back to the foolishness of man. The foolishness of man. So we have the truth. We have the truth, we know it, and what do we realize? Well, one, we realize we can't live up to the standard, right? Can you live up to the standard? Anyone fully live up to the standard completely? No. But why do we get a verse? Look at Psalm 119. Why do we get a verse like Psalm 119? He says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. <clears throat> so he's saying, blessed are those whose way is blameless. I mean, he's, he's indicating that a person's way can be blameless, right? Right? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose walk, who walk in the law of the Lord. We can't live up to the standard, but we can walk in the way of truth. There is a standard that we will always fall short of. We will always fall short. But then there's this idea that we can be characterized by one of two ways. Like we're either walking in the truth, walking in the ways, being blameless in the, in the way we live, or we're walking in darkness, we're, we're living in unrighteousness. So yes, we cannot meet the standard, but here's what we find out when we read our Bibles. One, everyone falls short of the standard. For all sin, right? And falls short of what? The glory of God. So we fall short. And God sets this standard that we can't meet. 
So what does God do? He meets the standard for us. Think about that. You can't meet it. You fall short. God knows that. So what does he do? He meets the standard for us. Sends his son to meet the standard, to be the standard, to meet the standard, to fulfill the obligations. Why? Because we couldn't. So then Christ gives us what we need. And we give Christ what we don't want, our sins. He takes the sins, we get his righteousness. He gives us that standard, so to speak, that God calls us to have. So we can through Christ. Think of life before Christ. Think of your life before Christ. You choose sin before God, right? Right? And you choose yourself before God. I mean, you choose whatever you wanted without any thought for God before your life in Christ. However you wanted to do it, however you wanted to live, how long, you know, whatever choices you wanted to make, no, no regard for God. I mean, you might have thought you had a little regard, but not really. No regard. But then think of your life after Christ. Doesn't the order get kind of rearranged a little bit? It should. And then what happens? Like, all of a sudden, like, God's at the top. And life is ordered with God at the top. Not yourself, or your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, or money, or whatever it might be. Your family, any of those things. Idols in your life that you've set up, you, you, you knock those down, God has been placed there, you've placed them there, both ways, and what? Life looks different. Doesn't life look different? It should look different, it better look different. If it doesn't look different, that's a problem. So life after Christ is different than life before Christ. Some of you that grew up in the church, you've been blessed, you might not see that much of a difference. Praise God for that. <clears throat> in one sense, even if you grew up in the church, there should still be a huge difference, right? Right? Might not be as noticeable to those on the outside, but to those that know their heart, at least a little bit, it should be greatly noticeable. So, life before Christ and then life after Christ. So we have this truth, and then back in Thessalonians, Paul goes on after he says, may fulfill every resolve for good. So we resolve to do good. We have a life. We have a standard that we can't meet that Christ meets, but we can walk in the way of truth and righteousness. Then we resolve to do good. That's what he's talking about. May fulfill every resolve for good. We have to resolve to do good. We do good. We don't do bad. Jonathan Edwards, <clears throat> great theologian, lived a couple hundred years ago. He had 70 resolutions that, that he wrote down and that he would review at least once a week. They're actually pretty good. You could probably read it in about 15 or 20 minutes tops. You should go read them. They're really good. But here's what he says at the very beginning of his resolutions. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. All right? So he's going to write these 70 things that he's resolving to do as a believer. But this is, this is his little preamble, his preface. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So he resolved to do these 70 things, right? But in the, in the, in the process of resolving, he's like, you know what? One, 
Some of these might not actually be God's will. So God, whatever it isn't, then wipe that off. But two, he realizes, like, I can't do anything without God's help. I'm making these resolutions, but I can't meet them in my own strength. You get the resolutions here of Jonathan Edwards, and then if you've ever been um, <clears throat> tortured to read the autobiography of Ben Franklin, like I was in high school, okay? It was short, but it was torturous. You, you get him, and he, and he kind of sets up his own little um, checkmark system, you find out, reading that biography. And he, he was trying to improve in different areas. But you get Jonathan Edwards knowing that he is doing it completely entirely leaning on Christ, you get Benjamin Franklin doing it in his own strength. And it's interesting when you read that little biography thing, like Franklin realized he couldn't do it. Like Even the standard that he set for himself, think about that. Even unbelievers, they set a standard for themselves. Unbelievers can't even meet the standard they set for themselves. They think lying is wrong, yet they lie. They think cheating is wrong, yet they cheat. They think talking down to people is wrong, yet they talk down to people. So they, they set their own standard, and yet they still fall short. So Benjamin Franklin realized that. Unbelievers, I don't know if some of them might realize it. Uh, they're in darkness. <clears throat> but we realize that apart from Christ, we can't even try to resolve to do anything good. We need them, just like Jonathan Edwards say, we are unable to do anything without God's help. So we resolve to do good. And what does that mean? It means the second part uh, of verse 11 where he says, resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Every work of faith by his power. Guess what this means? We work for the kingdom. Which means we work for the king. Right? You've got a boss. Not talking about your earthly boss talking about your heavenly boss that's who you're working for it's his reign it's his rule it's his kingdom and we're working for him so guess what that means he gives the orders right he gives the commands and what do we do listen and obey i don't know i mean but if we're truthful we don't always listen and obey if we're truthful sometimes we talk back if we're truthful sometimes we like plug up our ears if we're truthful, sometimes we get an attitude about it. And when those things happen, guess what you need to do? You need to repent. You need to get right with the Lord because we are called to listen and obey. You know, the problem, one of them, with liberal Christianity is that it wants to question anything and everything about what God has said. I, I just plain, simple truths. Plain, simple truths. And liberal Christianity wants to question it. They want to twist it and turn it. <clears throat> it's like the parent going, to, you know, uh, to their kid, you know, clean up your room. Every parent said that to their kid at some point. Clean up your room. And then you show up, like, well, however it is, you know, a couple hours or the next day, and you're like, your room's not clean. And they're, what do they say? Well, I thought you meant to just make my bed, right? Well, I thought you meant to just clean the floor. Well, I thought you meant to stuff it under my bed. I mean, they're, they're reinterpreting, right? They're twisting. They're turning. They know exactly what you meant. They know. We know you know. Okay? You ain't fooling nobody. So God, but God, God doesn't work that way. Okay? He said it. That's enough. We, we, if, you, if you want to deceive yourself, twist those words. But his word, I mean, it's pretty clear when you come to it. We don't have to, we don't have to guess. What, what does he mean when he says, do not murder? 
What does he mean when he says, honor him? What does it mean when it says, seek first his kingdom? What does it mean when it says, do not commit adultery? We don't have to, I mean, that's crazy. If we're to the point of debating that, then we are deceived of deceived. It is clear. It is clear. His word is clear. It's called the perspicuity of scripture. It is clear. Clear things there. So we work for the kingdom, but notice how it's done. By his power. This whole, I mean, man, you, you can't read hardly any of these verses in Second Thessalonians with, with, without coming a, 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 away from it with, with just a huge view of God's sovereignty. Huge view of God's sovereignty. Uh, over and over again. I mean, he's in control. He is in control. He is in control. That goes back to my intro to my intro, right? He's in control. So all these things happening, even us walking with the Lord, to this end, we always pray for you that our God, right there, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. And then just to make sure we understand it, he puts this at the end, by his power. God's doing it at the beginning, he's doing it at the end, he's doing it in the middle. It's all by God, all right? So we're working for his kingdom. Whatever God calls us to do, we do it. Whatever it is. Might, it might not be something we want to do. It might be something super tough. It might be something we have to make a lot of sacrifices for. But if he calls us to do it, we do it. God is more glorified when he calls you to do something that you don't want to do, and then out of faith and trust and love, you go ahead and do it, than when he calls you to do something, you're like, oh, I'll totally do that, Lord. Well, yeah, sure, you wanted to do it. That's not the test of your faith. The test of your faith is when he gives you something challenging to do, and you're like, ugh, not that, please. And you're like, fine, Lord, out of obedience and love for you, I will submit to that, and I will do it. The, uh, about 150, 200 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, actually, there was a young lady. She was French, French Protestant. They called them the Huguenots. It's a longer story to explain that. but So French Huguenot, 19 years old. Her name was Marie Durand. And... Uh, the Huguenots in, in, in France, the Protestants essentially, were being majorly persecuted by the Catholics. Big time. Big time. Like, throw them in jail. Big time. So, she ends up getting thrown in jail. In prison. It's actually not clear why. Possibly because she was going to a Huguenot church service, which was outlawed at the time. Possibly because her brother was a preacher, a Protestant preacher. But she was thrown into prison at the age of 19. And every day they would come and ask her to say one simple word in French. And if she said that word, they'd release her. One simple word is all she had to say in French. Translated, it was, I renounce. I renounce. So she, she refused every single day. Now how long could you last if that was you? She was imprisoned with about, uh, I think, about 30 other women in, in this fam famous tower that you can actually still go visit to this day and see where she was imprisoned. But how long would you last? Because day after day, friends, comes and goes, and every single day they come and offer that to each person in that prison, every single woman in that prison, just that one French word, and you can walk out. And she refuses, and she refuses day after day, week after week, month after month. You want to know how long she was there? 38 years. 
38 years, she would not recant her faith in Christ. Think about that. Entering at the age of 19, she was not freed until she was 57 years old. Living in some of the worst conditions. You can go to that tower today, and there's one word inscribed on the walls that either she or some of her lady cellmates wrote. It's one word, resist. Resist. That's what they had to do every single day for their faith. Let me tell you something. God made her worthy of the calling. God made her worthy. And if you're like, oh, I I could never do that. I could never do that. Of course not. You could never do that. You could never do that. But, But Christ in you could. Christ in you could. And he will strengthen you on that day to do whatever he calls you to do. Listen, awful men do awful things for all sorts of reasons. And and if we're honest, we're not exempt from doing those awful deeds. Nor are we exempt from being the recipient of those awful deeds. And they do it in the name of religion, they do it in the name of science, they do it in all sorts of names. It's twisted, it's disgusting, it's wrong. But we have a Savior who will stand with us, whatever might come. And Christ was with Marie every single day for those 38 years. Thousands of times she had to make a vocal decision to stand with Jesus every single day. Just one word and she's free to go, but it meant the renouncing of her faith and her Savior. She couldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. She stood strong. And we have a calling. There's kind of really two aspects when we talk about calling because that's what he says in verse 11. Look back there. May God make you worthy of his calling. Well, what's the calling? It's in the New Testament, this word is almost exclusively used of the divine call. And, and Paul uses this word. It's really a theme that goes throughout 1 Thessalonians. We looked, at it, we looked at it, you know, back when we were going through it. But chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, he mentions it. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Over and over again, there's this idea of calling. And there's more of what I would call um, an external call. That's the call that goes forth, and it's the gospel call that goes forth to every single person. That's where Jesus gives the parable, and what does he say at the end? Uh, Many are called, but few are chosen, right? So there's an external call. I might even call it like a general call. That's the gospel going forth, proclaiming to people that Christ rose from the dead. They need to repent of their sins and trust in him. That call goes to everyone. Everyone's called in that sense. But there's more of a, what I would call a specific calling, or you might call an internal calling, where God calls a person. And when he calls them, it's like you can't resist. He calls you, and he calls you to be his own. He calls you into his kingdom. He calls you to be one of his children. So there's, there's a sense in which we're all called, but there's another sense in which God calls someone to be his own. That's where Second Peter talks about, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And in Romans 8, verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Right? So that, that's, this is talking about believers here. He predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, in this sense, he didn't call everyone. Because not all are justified, not all are glorified, right? We're not universalists. We don't believe every single person is saved. No. 
So this is the idea of that internal call, that specific call that Christ has on a person who is saved. He calls them, they get saved. He calls them, they get justified. He calls them, they get glorified. That's like the snapshot of the salvation picture right there in Romans 8. So that leads us to verse 12. It says, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you potentially could talk about how, like, living our lives glorify God. That might be an application of this passage, but it's not what is primarily in view. The glorifying here has to be taken in the context of all the verses we previously read. And what's that whole passage we previously read dealing about? Christ coming back. It's talking about the glorification on that last day. So that's why, if you look back at verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, that's the context. Christ is coming back and he's being glorified. What happens on that day for us? We're glorified as well. We are glorified because Christ comes back to redeem us for his own completely, fully, entirely. So it's interesting because I think when we think about Jesus coming back, a lot of times when we think about glorification, think about this, we think about us being glorified. Now, because of time, we don't have much time to go into it, but it might, that might be a new word or concept to you. That means when, when God comes back for his church, it doesn't matter if you're pre, mid, or post, or whatever, but he's coming back. I hope you believe at least that, right? He's physically coming back. Okay, We're going to meet him up in the air. <clears throat> We're going to receive a glorified body. A glorified body. So we will be transformed. We will be transformed and have an entirely new body. One what? That cannot sin. We will be like him. It says for we will see him as he is. So all the things that we're struggling, we wish we could be free of, of sin, one day we entirely, completely, fully will be. You will have no desire whatsoever, not even an inkling of an inkling, to want to choose sin. No temptation at all. Wouldn't that be a, a glorious day, right? A glorious day. That's why, right? So we'll be glorified. A lot of times that's what we think of. Oh, we're going to get a glorified body. That's completely true. Guess what, though? Christ will be glorified, right? Now, he's already glorified, but what's going to happen is we're going we're to see him in his full glory for the first time ever. We will see him completely glorified. Where? Publicly, in front of all the nations. What does Philippians say? Every knee will bow. Now, he, he doesn't have any more glory than he has right now, but he's going to be glorified at. What's going to be happening to us? Verse 10, we're going to be marveling. We're not even going to be thinking about ourselves. We're, we're going to have our eyes focused on him and how amazing and awesome he is. No more glass to see through, all right? We're, we're going to see clearly. We will see him clearly. That's going to be an amazing thing for us to witness and be a part of. So that, that there's two aspects of glorification. We need to make sure we, we make note of that. The marveling, the rejoicing, us exalting his name. Us glorifying him. And then we're glorified as well. Both of these, when you think about it, says the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. Both of these show the union we have with Christ. Right, that, that, that's you know a whole teaching in and of itself. 
<clears throat> but it expresses how we are united with Christ. He's glorified, and we're glorified in him. He's glorified, and we're glorified in him. Friends, one day, what we read about, we will witness with our eyes. We will see Jesus in all his glory and majesty. We will exalt him as he is rightly due. We'll exalt him because of his attributes and character. We'll exalt him because of who he is. Okay, Jesus is not just some like abstract person. He's not just like some person we read about in the pages, just like you do some mystery novel or something like that. He's not just some guy who died on a cross. I mean, this is Jesus, our Savior. This is Jesus who sacrificed his life for you. This is the Holy One, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who laid down his life so that you could have life. Not just the bios life, the biology life, but the zoe life, the spiritual life, the eternal life. He laid it down so that you could be made whole with the Father. Did he have to do that? He really didn't. He didn't. Now, he had to do it because the Father told him to do it, and he's a obedient son. But did God the Father have to send his son? No. Did the son have to go? No. But they loved us. The Father loves us, the Son loves us, and the Spirit loves us. And they testify over and over and over how much they love us and care for us and, and redeem us. And wish <clears throat> their blessings and mercies they pour out upon us. So here we are. If we're looking, let me just say this, if we're looking for a carefree, conflict-free life, um, you've not understood your calling. You haven't. And Christianity is not for you. Okay, if you're going to walk with Jesus, there will be conflict. And you're going to have challenges and struggles. So that's one thing. Second, death, however it may come, sooner than we might wish, death has lost its sting. It has lost its sting. There is no sting in death. We need to remind ourselves of that. That needs to be proclaimed a little bit louder at funerals. Death, for the believer, has lost its sting. That's just coming from the Bible. 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's taken away. That doesn't mean it's not painful when someone we care about dies. But let's be reminded of the hope of the resurrection. Let's be reminded this is just but for a season. You know, I think, you know, my mom served as a missionary for about nine years, and she could only, actually, I think she could only, at the beginning, she could only come home like every other year. So I wouldn't see my mom for two years. My, my kids wouldn't see their grandma for, you know, for two years. That's a long time. So, you know, she comes home, and then she's getting ready to get on the plane, and, and there's tears, understandably. Well, you'd be like, oh, well, you're going to see her in a couple years. Well, why are you crying about that? Well, no. What? Because you're going to miss that person. So, yeah, there's, there's going to be tears at a funeral, but it's, it's the tears of someone for a believer that you're going to see again. Okay? They're going on a journey. Guess what? You're, you're actually right in line behind them, okay? <laughs> you might not know it, but you got a ticket. And you're going to see them again. The believer will see the believer again. So we take hope in that. Death has lost its sting. And then third, in times of crisis, guess what our duty is? Hold fast to the rule of life, which Christ has set before us. Get on with the work that he's placed before us. 
Be faithful to him in the tasks that he's given us. These are the prayers that, that Paul is praying, and, and then by extension, God is giving us and believing in us and wanting for us and exhorting us to do as well. So we walk in his ways blameless, not because of what we have, but because of what he has given us, what he's already done for us, what we have in Christ, in Christ alone, right? That's the rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And get off the beach, y'all, because that's the sand. Get onto the rock. All right? You choose the beach or the rock. Most people choose the beach. Well, the rock is steady and sturdy. Ain't no sand on the rock, so stand on that rock. He is the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that there is no shifting of shadows or changing of opinions or minds with you that what you declare is true and righteous and glorious, that you lay down your life as a willing sacrifice, as a propitiation to appease the wrath of the Father. Thank you, God, for pouring out your wrath on Jesus so it wasn't poured out on us, <clears throat> on us, God. Thank you for seeing us and redeeming us and calling us to be your own, not because of any worth we had, simply because you chose to do it. You called us, you chose us, you redeemed us, you made us your own. There's nothing to boast about for any of us except to boast in you. And we got a lot of boasting to do, Father, and we do boast about you. We do extol your name. We look forward to the day of Christ's return where we will see him for who he fully is, we will have the scales completely fallen off. We will see him truly, not through just the glass dimly, but in his full righteousness as he is right now. We will marvel, like Paul says. We will be amazed, and he will be glorified in our midst, and he will glorify us. Thank you, Jesus, for having that sealed and secured already. Thank you that you have victory over the grave, that Satan took his best shot and fell way short. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand firm in the victory of Jesus, that we walk in his ways, that we trust you, Lord. Continue, Lord, your good work in us. Continue, Lord, to fulfill your ways through us. Continue, Lord, to have us resolve to do good and work for you and your kingdom. We pray this with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen.